Well, good morning again. Um, this morning, we're going to continue working our way through the theologically rich book of Romans. Uh, this morning, we'll be in Romans chapter 8, and our particular focus will be on verses 26 through 27. If you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 9, we're going to be on verses 26 and 27, but for the sake of context, and you'll be able to see that more as I go along, I want to start at verse 18. So now this is God's holy and inerrant word, so let us give careful attention to it. The word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience in our text. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray again that you would illumine our mind this morning. Speak to us concerning your Spirit and the comprehensive work that he carries out in our life. It's often said that the Spirit does not magnify himself, and that is true. He magnifies our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to reveal and to continue to show us in this chapter the grandeur of the majesty of the Spirit. So we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears so that we might hear that which you have for us and then ultimately that we would see through the work of the Spirit the grandeur of our Lord and the way that he is conforming us to his image, all to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now those of you who were here four and a half years ago when I delivered my first sermon to this congregation may remember how I talked about my great aunt who had raised me from infancy. She had me from three months old and how she lived with Dorothy and me in South Florida for five years. And one day, after taking her to her regularly scheduled doctor's appointment, I was told that her pulse was, was beating in an irregular manner and she needed to be taken to the nearby hospital. It was just walking distance away to be checked out for what I thought was precautionary measures. That was October 19th, 2004. And one day later after that date, 
One mistakenly lacerated liver sustained during an exploratory surgery, surgical procedure because she had complained about a long-standing pain in her stomach. One medical mishap later, which then led to her being placed on dialysis, which then led to being in a rehab center and never again leaving her sickbed, but instead being transferred back and forth to a rehab center and then in an emergency incidence to the hospital, then back to the rehab center. Add in some bad, really, really bad bed sores, and I was faced with a dilemma. I needed to be praying through this, but how was I supposed to pray? What was I supposed to pray for? I wanted to pray for the doctors that they would pay for what they had done to the woman that I loved and that raised me. But should I have instead been praying that she would transition into glory well or that she should recover to see my children, the ones that she loved so dearly, she would see them grow up. What should I was be praying? What should I have been praying for? A parent has a child who has always done well, both academically and in social circles, but though they have been raised in the faith, they are increasingly abandoning any vestige of the faith. Now suddenly they start to struggle at the top level job that they earned, that they previously earned. Now they're facing the threat of being let go, of being fired. Their marital relationship is tenuous at best. Everything seems to be cratering in the life of this child whom you love so much. How do you pray for them? Do you pray for things to get better socially and economically? Suppose it just happens to me that God's mercy is being distilled to that child through those hardships. After all, the scriptures do declare, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Wouldn't it then maybe be better to pray that God would have his will through that? How do we pray? We don't want to see our children suffering. We don't want to see them lose the job. But what is God doing? How do we pray? How should we pray? What should we pray for? And if things stopped there, it would be enough. But along comes the wrestling with all sorts of other stuff. Whether it's the doubting of God's love and provision for us, that is a consequence of our sin, or a lack of assurance of our eternal destiny. These things all work together to produce false guilt in us, to wear us down, and to separate us from the true lover of our souls. Often we're worn down, so distressed, so turned around by the world, our flesh, the devil, that we find ourselves moving towards being enveloped in a quandary of prayerlessness. The Apostle Paul is, is no stranger to this struggle, brothers and sisters. In chapter 7, he decried the fact that he found himself engaging in a dynamic that had him doing the things that he did not want to do and not doing the things he wanted to do. He recognized that his old nature still had some sway in his life and he was in need of being rescued and sustained by someone other than himself, by someone greater than himself. In short, the Apostle Paul Ask the same question that the psalmist asked in Psalm 121. 
Where does my help come from? Now, through Scripture and Paul and Scripture, we know that the answer is from the Lord. But then that begs the question, how does my help come from the Lord? Particularly so this morning as it relates to prayer and our sanctification. Paul has already answered that question as it relates to our right standing before God, our justification. It was through the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who once and for all entered the Holy of Holies on our behalf and offered up himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so there is no more condemnation for us. That is literally how this chapter started. After Paul recognizing what he did in chapter 7, chapter 8 starts off with, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we've been once and for all reconciled to God. So that's our justification. But now comes our sanctification, the stage we are being molded and shaped into the image of our Lord. It is here that we face all types of tests and trials, where the world buffets and assails us. We're in the midst of all things. We're called to pray. So how does our help come in the midst of the storms we face on this side of life? The storms that foster our doubts, and primes our fears? How does it come as we pray about and through these things? This is what the Apostle Paul is answering for us here this morning. So with those thoughts in mind, I want us to look at these two verses under three headings. First, the source of our help. And then the realm and goal of our help. And thirdly, the excellencies of our help. And so forth, the source of our help. Paul says it right off the top. The Spirit helps us. It is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, the person of whom our Lord Jesus was referring to in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, when he told his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I really don't need to spend any significant time on this point. Because Paul has been highlighting, and we've been seeing this, he's been highlighting uh, the work of the Spirit since verse 2 of this chapter. He, the Holy Spirit, is the one that freed us from sin and death through the application of the finished work of Christ. That's verses 2 through 3. He is the one that enables us to fulfill God's law. Without him, we can do nothing. That's verse 4. He is the one who changes our nature and grants us strength for victory over our unredeemed flesh. Verses 5 through 13. He is the one that confirms our adoption as sons and daughters of the one true God. Verses 14 through 16. And as we'll see this morning, he is the one that guarantees 
our ultimate glory. And that brings us right back to our opening question, how? Which brings us to our second heading, the realm and goal of our help. We've already seen or heard of some important ways in which the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is involved in the life of a believer. But here in verses 26 and 27, as you've already heard, the focus is on the means of grace we know as prayer. As a means of grace, prayer is a tool that God has given us to allow us to communicate with him, to draw near to him, or as the writer of Hebrews wrote in chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So based on the finished work of Christ, we can have confidence in coming to the Father. But oh, wouldn't it be great if we had that same level of confidence when it comes to what or how we should pray. Here, according to Paul, we don't know how because of what he refers to as our weakness. And what is that weakness, you ask? What is our weakness? John MacArthur, commenting on that word weakness, wrote the following. In this context, weakness doubtless refers to the human condition in general, not to a specific weakness. The point is that even after salvation, we are characterized by spiritual weakness, acting morally, speaking the truth, witnessing for the Lord, or doing any other good thing happens only by the power of the Spirit working in and through us despite our limitations. Concerning our inability, he goes on to say, because of our imperfect perspectives, we don't always see things right. Because of our imperfect perspective, because of our finite minds, we only have a limited grasp on things. Our human frailty, our condition, total depravity, every part of us has been affected by sin. No part of us is able to release ourselves from that bondage to the degree where we're glorified and don't have any limitations. We're not able, therefore, to pray in an absolute consistency with God's will. And what is that will, you ask? Well, of course, I can't provide the answer in every specific situation, but what I can tell you with certainty from the context of this chapter is the ultimate goal that God has in mind for you and for me and for everyone who has the name of God. Look at verse 26 again. It starts off with the word likewise and connects to the Spirit's intercession with groaning. And to what end? What is the primary end or what we call the telos of the Spirit's groaning in verse 26? To find our answer, we always have to connect to the context that's surrounding that which we're looking at. We don't pull verses out of its place and make it say whatever we want it to say. We say what the Word of God is saying expositionally. We exegete the text, not eisegesis. it. We don't read things into it. So what is being said here? To find our answer, I'd ask that you go back up to verse 19 with me. It reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation is in bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. That word groaning is the exact same word in the Greek as the word groaning in chapter 26 of the verse we're looking at. So the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We have the guarantee that we will be saved because the Spirit is deposited in us as a guarantee of that. We who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly. The same word again, groan, in the original text. As we wait eagerly for adoptions of sons, the redemptions of our body. And so, brothers and sisters, beloved, what we just read is that the creation is groaning to be renewed. To be clothed with the glory it once had as God's created masterpiece. And we too, having been given the spirit as a guarantee of our eternal destiny, are inwardly groaning for the receipt of our glorified bodies. Groaning to be absent from the body and present with the Lord in our renewed body. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. And then when you look at our text. The spirit is now groaning. Now, as we return to our text, we find again the Holy Spirit enjoined in the chorus of groanings to the same end. That is that we would be conformed to the image of Christ and be clothed with the bodies that have been promised to us. Beloved, that is why, because of what's going on here, that is why the Apostle Paul can say, in Philippians 1.6, just as I said, I am sure, he said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit, this entire chapter from the very beginning, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. To the very end, it's all about the assurance that God has given to you as a believer. It is to that primary end that the Spirit intercedes, that is pleased on our behalf, to the Father, on the basis of the finished work of the Son, with groanings too deep for words. The creation is not speaking words. We're not speaking words. And here the Spirit is not speaking with words that are understood. The word we see translated as word here is not the typical word translated from the Greek, which is the word logos. That's the word you typically see, okay? Thus, Doriani, in his Reform Expository Commentary, has, I believe, rightfully stated that the literal Greek wording is with wordless groans. You see, there's a Trinitarian line of communication going on here. That's beyond our spiritual pay grade. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit perfectly communicating with each other. They've been doing that before the world was created. And they're perfectly doing it here. What we do know is that the word groan or groanings 
We don't know exactly the nature of it, but what we do know is it communicates the idea of being under intense weight, an intense weight of burden. It's the same word the Septuagint uses when the people cried out to Israel in chapter 2 of Exodus, and the word says that God heard their groaning. Intense weight of burning. Believe it, beloved, the Holy Spirit. Here's what you need to know. The Holy Spirit is intimately, intensely involved in bringing you along. In fact, if I could go back just a little bit, the word help in verse 26 is actually three words in the Greek. And as Steve Lawson says, the word is much stronger than what is conveyed in English. It's not just, oh, he helped me with my homework. It's not, no, oh, he just helped me, you know, it helped me with the food that I had to deliver. No, it's, man, I couldn't, under, it, it would be like talking about me in, in calculus. You wouldn't be helping me, you'd be doing my work for me, you see? And, and so it's, it's that way he pulls us forward and moves us towards the end that God has for both in the temporal situations and in the internal situations. And so we should remind ourselves that God has ordained our prayers as a means to his end. That's the second thing you should know about the word help. It says help, which means that he's doing something when we do something. We are called to pray. The Bible says that the, the prayers of the righteous avail it much. And the reason that is the case is because God has ordained it as a means to his end. So no matter how far off base our prayers might be, we should be able to rest in the confidence that we have an advocate who is not only infinitely vested in pleading for us, but one who is able to do so perfectly, which brings us to our last heading, the excellencies of our help. Here I'm defining excellencies in its archaic sense. So here it means an outstanding feature or quality. And that feature is perfection. We are already somewhat touched. We already somewhat touched on this. But everything that we're not, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is. He's infinite in his knowledge and perfectly joined to the Father. So much so that Paul tells us that he is able to plead our case, to advocate on our behalf in a manner that is always according to the will of the Father. In every way, in every situation, no matter how hopeless it might seem, no matter how many variables might be involved, it can be an infinite number of variables, and that is exactly what's going on. Do you know that when you came here to church, there was all kinds of stuff going on? Do you know there was demons that were trying to maybe keep you from coming here? You see that in the book of Daniel when Daniel prayed, and the angel came to him and said, look, I was hindered by, under, by, the dark, by darkness. There are all kinds of stuff going on around you. You don't know what to pray. I don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. But God, the Holy Spirit, is interceding for us perfectly, temporally, and for eternal purposes. <clears throat> and so as we move along, no matter how many variables, like I said, he knows everything that needs to be communicated perfectly, comprehensively so. He knows when, how, where, and the Father, even before, and what about the Father? Even before the Spirit pleads perfectly, the Father knows two things perfectly. Of course, the Father knows everything perfectly. But I'm speaking here specifically as it pertains to this sermon. 
The entrails of our hearts, he knows, and the mind of the spirit. Listen to what scripture says concerning the first, his knowledge of the entrails of our hearts. First Chronicles 2, 28, 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the heart. Psalm 7, 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. Psalm 44, 21. Would not God find this out? Folks, you can't hide from God. You can't go home and, and cut the fool and act this way and act that way and do things outside the realm of God's glory and then come to church pretending this and pretending that because God, he says in 44.21, would not God find this out? For he knows the secret of the heart. So we might as well repent. We might as well be on the up and up with God. We might as well pour out our heart to God in prayer, knowing that he is going to take our imperfect petitions and, and intercede for us in a manner that befits the king of kings. So it is God the Father who searches hearts in our text. And it is he who knows the mind of the spirit. And, and that would have to be so because God is one. And the will of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are identical. So he said, well, wait a minute, Dean. When Jesus walked on the earth, he said, not my will, but your will be done. I always want to do the will of the Father. Well, that's because that's the Jesus who Philippians 2 said left the glories of heaven and took on the form of a servant and submitted himself. So it is as a man that he was submitting his will to the will of the Father. But as God, his will is already perfectly aligned with the Spirit and with the Father and has always been that way. Now, having stated what I just did about the identical will of the Godhead, it might seem like Paul's statement that the Father knows the mind of the Spirit is therefore unnecessary. But in response to that, I would say that it is absolutely not unnecessary. I want you to hear me. What I would say is that I believe the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the height and the breadth and the depth of the Trinity's united passion. God is passionately concerned about his people. God is passionately in love and concerned about you and every detail of your life and where your eternal uh, destination will be. He is passionately involved in that. And that is why we can be rest assured that he will take us home and that everything that we deal with is for a reason and a purpose to fulfill what I just said. So the father now, that which started from the foundation of the world is what they are concerned about. And that is the father given to the son a people for himself. The son purchasing them and the spirit securing them, doing so in perfect alignment with the father and the son. The father now hearing the intercession of both the son. For Jesus is on the right hand side of the father interceding for us and the spirit is indwelling us interceding again for us, even when we pray and don't know what to pray. 
You're talking about being locked in the grip of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father ordained it. The Son bought it. And the Spirit applied it. Who then can take us out of that? That's what he's saying. There is now no condemnation. Whom he called, he will justify. Who he justified, he will sanctify, which is what's happening to us now. And whom he sanctified, he will glorify. We can rest in that. We can rest in that. All the honor. The Father, now hearing the intercession again of both the Son and the Spirit, the Son as he sits on the right hand of the Father, interceding with that intensity, that same level of intensity that befits the task at hand. The Spirit then interceding with you here, that groaning, the intense groaning, the intense focus on keeping us, on dealing with every detail of our lives, comes along and he indwells us and cries out on our behalf with a level of intensity again. Turning now, look at this now, look at the wonder of God, turning who we were, objects of wrath, into vessels of mercy and bringing us home to our eternal glory. All to the honor of the Son and the praise and glory of the Father. And so we're called to pray without ceasing, both for things that are temporal God is concerned about every single detail of our life and the things that are eternal. God is equally engaged in both that which is temporal and that which is eternal. You know, I talked about my great aunt. She was my great aunt and her death. And how I prayed, I want to pray imprecatory prayers, you know, that God would strike the doctors down with a, a this and a that and this and that. But let me tell you something that happened out of this. My oldest sister was an unbeliever. She, at one point, used to live with me and my aunt. It was both of us that lived, and, you know, you might have heard me talk about this on the pulpit, of how we used to fight like cats and dogs and running each other around with this and that and so on and so forth. So at some point, my, my mom sent her back. I mean, my aunt sent her back to her, my mom. But Charmaine, that's my sister name, loved my aunt to death. And the funeral was in South Florida, my aunt's funeral. Charmaine came from New York where they lived at that, point, that particular point. And again, remember, she's an unbeliever. So she now sits through the funeral of my aunt, my great aunt, whom she loved to death. Pastor Addison Saltal, 6'8 brother. So you see, Christian's not the only 6'8 minister I know, you see. So he now starts to preach from the gospel, share the gospel of Jesus Christ at my aunt's funeral. And guess what? Charmaine came to faith. Shouldn't I have been maybe praying, instead of praying imprecatory prayers of revenge, shouldn't I have been praying for God to touch the heart of those in the hospital and save them? Shouldn't I have been praying that God would use my aunt's funeral to draw our family members to himself. I did not pray that. But guess what? I know now and believe with my whole heart, the Holy Spirit was. The Holy Spirit brought to pass that which my aunt would have wanted the most because if you had asked my aunt, would you be willing to die 
so that Charmaine could see you in heaven? She would have said yes. But she wasn't going to pray that, and neither was I. We don't know how these things unfold. Jacob prayed for his people to be sustained in Canaan. They were few in number, maybe 70. I'm talking about Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. They're walking now. His daughter gets raped, Dinah. They, they come to a point of starvation because there is a famine in the land. And so now he probably prays, oh, Lord, take care of my food. You know, please give me food for my, 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 my uh, children and so on and so forth. He's crying because he believes Jacob, I mean, Joseph is dead. But do you know that in his prayers, God had already ordained that Joseph would go to Egypt, be the prime minister, and be the salvation of the entire known world of that time. So while Jake was praying for temporal things, God was concerned about that. But God was also sitting at a 100,000 foot level, seeing all the contingencies and bringing all things to pass so that Joseph could turn around when his brothers thought they were... He was going to kill them and say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Every single situation that's occurring in your life right now, people might mean it for evil. But if you belong to God, God means it for good. Every single prayer that you send up is being answered. Every single prayer that you send up is being answered. God has called you to pray, and he's answering every single one. But if they're not in line with the will of God, we have an advocate who answers according to the will of God, strengthens us in the midst of that, and moves us forward. That is a good God. Brothers and sisters, the more we read scripture, the more we hear about the God that we serve and the things that he's doing for us, and in us to the praise of his glory, the more we should just want to love this God and serve this God with our whole heart. Incomprehensibly taking care of you, using your imperfect prayers, using our imperfect prayers, and still moving it to a perfect end, all to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for illuminating the work of the Spirit in our hearing. What a wonderful thing that you would have the Spirit in us, interceding for us with words that, uh, groanings that cannot be understood, but you perfectly understand them. For you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And your heart is such that you focused on bringing us home, intently, passionately, lovingly on bringing us home, you also are working every single thing towards that end. Every single thing, every detail of our lives, you know full well. And you, as the lover of our souls, are taking care of us in such a way that we might not understand the bad, but surely you do. And we can rest in the confidence that you have our best interests at heart, that you want us to be before you, and that is your will, and that is what will come to pass. And so we thank you for 
the strength of your will, the strength of your promises, and the faithfulness that you continue to demonstrate to us throughout the things that are before us and the things that we have already experienced and that which we have before us. Thank you again for this time. We pray that as we leave here, that we will walk in the confidence that we will pray to you, knowing that you are using our prayers, you are interceding for us, and you are wonderfully bringing all things to pass. And when we step before you in eternity, we will have an eternity to hear about it, to see it, and to see how all things did in fact work together for good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.